Good morning to everybody. God is good all the time. Yes, He is. And I was thinking about those uh, opening verses of Revelation, just as John begins to uh, receive that, all of that from the Spirit, from God. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day on the island of Patmos. Are you in the Spirit today? Okay, yeah, we're in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And uh, I just kept thinking about it. That's the only time in New Testament that you find that term, Lord's Day. But it's, you know, we know what the Lord's Day is. It's today. All 24 hours of it. And uh, we need to use it for, uh, for his glory and for his honor. And I just about wore out my voice singing. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have the same. I don't have it quite here like, like I used to. But, you know, uh, I'm also thinking of Psalm 22 and 3 where it says, The Lord sits enthroned upon the praises of Israel. When we sing praises to God, we are creating a throne. And a throne where he can sit and receive those praises, even more praises. And we've made a throne today. And he's here with us. And uh, there's no way I could uh, really... We could go home right now. Everything we need to happen has happened already. I'm, but I'm just going to try to add a little bit to what, uh, what has already been started. At the end of uh, every project, there's this, uh, what I call, loose ends that have to be tied up. That's where you uh, start to put away your tools and you clean them up and you sweep up and you wipe the dust up. And you start putting things back in place and trying to get everything back to where it's just a bunch of little stuff that has to happen in order to put things back in order. I call that tying up loose ends. And we are at the end of, of a project that we've been on. We've been, our project has been to just study what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, uh, especially our New Testaments. And we've just got just a few more items to, uh, to look at here. I don't know if you remember back uh, probably three, four, five months ago, I handed out a little sheet like this uh, titled, uh, What Does the Holy Spirit Do? A Summary from the New Testament. And uh, these are uh, things that... As we've gone through these last three or four months. Oh, okay. You don't have anything a little stronger than water? Okay. All right, I'll have to do with water. <laughs> I mean Listerine, you know. But <laughs> that's what I was talking about. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> But uh, we just got just a few more items on this uh, sheet that we haven't touched on directly. There is one that we're not going to worry about until uh, Sunday evening, a few, a few weeks down the way. We'll be talking about miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And uh, we're studying 1 Corinthians, and so when we get to 11, well, 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians, I, I'm just going to say that's going to, we'll cover that at that particular time. And there's only uh, just a, a few loose ends, four of them, that I want to tie up this morning. And then we're going to say that this is done. And we'll, we'll do something else here for the weeks to come. But I got four loose ends I want you to think about that uh, are still hanging out on this sheet right here. The first one is to say that the Holy Spirit sanctifies the child of God. Now, that's not big news to uh, most of you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies the child of God. The Bible says this uh, plainly in two, three, four, five different places. I'm going to put two of them up here for you to look at. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. 
Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there, about middle way in that middle ways in that little paragraph, I underlined it, that uh, God has chosen you, beloved brethren, through sanctification by the Spirit. In other words, you're being sanctified by the Spirit. It's what he's saying to us. Then we can look at also at uh, Peter. Peter talks about this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as he starts that letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, my grip, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And so uh, he mentions again here directly to these Christian people that it's by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing something to these people, for these people, with these people. And he's calling it sanctification. Now, when, when I use that word, some people get uh, a little worried because it, it's a big religious word. It's, it's a mysterious, uh, mysterious word. And um, we're not sure what it is. Some of us aren't. And we're not sure that we really want to get involved with it if we don't even know what it is. But let me just uh, explain a little bit here. It's, it's not that hard. There's a whole cluster of English words in our English Bibles that are used to translate just one root word in Greek. And I'm going to put this, put this up on the board here for you to look at here. When you see the word saint in, in our New Testaments, behind that is a, a word hagios. That's, that's a Greek word. It means holy. And a saint is a holy one. If you see the word holy in, in our uh, New Testaments, you're looking at the word hagios. That's the adjective, the adjective there. If something is holy, it's hagios. Holiness, hagiosmos, to sanctify or to make holy, hagiazo, and a sanctuary is a hagion. And so we, we get all these uh, separate English words to translate here, but once you look at it like this, you understand it, it's all the same thing. It all comes out of the same root, the same idea. So we've got several English words, but one root word. And it literally means to be separated or set apart for a special purpose. And it's God's will for every, every one of us to live a life, a holy life, a sanctified life, a life that is set apart for him, for his purposes, to use our life for that purpose. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13. What these verses that we looked at a little while ago, this one and plus the one from 1 Peter, what they tell us is that God has given us the Holy Spirit to sanctify each one of us, to make us holy people. God loves us enough to save us the way we are. He'll take anybody. Okay, no, no holds bar here. But he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And so once he has made us Christians, once he has changed our status, as we've moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, he begins to work with us. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us holy people. To change us. That's how he describes it here. Now, for some people, sanctification by the Spirit is like a big emotional event. It's something that happens like all at once. Uh, they can point to a specific time and place when it's like the heavens opened up and uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out and they 
uh, something was ripped out of them. The, the desire of sin is ripped out of them. They're laying on the floor. They're running around maybe, shouting and all this kind of thing. But I think it's better to think of sanctification as a process, a lifelong process. And it starts when we are converted, and God's not done with us, really, until we leave this body. We, you know, at, at that point, then he's, he's done everything he can do for us while we're in the body, cause, and we've left the body. Sanctification covers everything that happens to us from the time that we're converted until the time that we die or, we, or the Lord comes back to, to, bring us, to bring us home. But that's how I want you to think about this. And so the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us until the day that we die. And I want you to realize something here. Sanctification by the Spirit is just another way of saying things that we have been saying for the last three or four months about the Holy Spirit. To be sanctified by the Holy Spirit means that I'm being led by the Spirit. If I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm being sanctified by the Spirit. To be sanctified by the Holy Spirit is to walk by the Spirit. I mean, we, we've talked about that. We spent a whole lesson talking about walking by the Spirit. And if you're walking by the Spirit, you're being sanctified by the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit of God is to be sanctified by the Spirit. To develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life, that's, that's the work of sanctification of the Spirit in us. To put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, that's also a, a, a part of sanctification. So it's all the same thing. It's different words uh, that's being used here and coming at it from a different angle, but it's all the same thing, and I, I, I hold up my diamond every now and then. Uh, a lot of the Bible, and this is one of those subjects that, that I think fits in here. Uh, it's not a diamond, it's glass, okay? Don't get excited. Um, <laughs> a diamond has, uh, is one thing. It, it is what it is, but it has all these facets or faces, you know, the standard cut for a diamond has 58 facets on it, and I think this one might have more. This is just glass. But uh, it's all the same diamond, but as you turn the diamond, you'll see something else comes into view. And it might look a little different than the one that you just looked at, but you turn it again, and there's another facet. And that's kind of what's going on here. When you talk about sanctification, you're talking about a lot of things that all go together in one, that form one thing. It's a process. That starts when we are converted and continues until we leave this life. And so that, that's one of our loose ends right there. Here's the second loose end I want you to think about this morning. And that is the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, especially in prayer. I want you to look at Romans 8, 26 and 27. Paul is speaking to the Roman church. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here in Romans 8, Paul speaks about a weakness that we have that the Spirit takes care of. And what that weakness is, well, it's one of our weaknesses, one of many weaknesses we have as a human being. But it shows up in prayer especially. And here, here, here's the deal. We don't, don't always know what to pray. We don't always know what to say when it comes our time to pray. We don't know what to ask for. We, uh, we're plagued with this problem here. We have limited knowledge. We can't read people's minds. We can't see the future. Uh, we certainly don't know what God uh, has in mind sometimes. I mean, it's just like, wow. Uh, 
I, I, you know, maybe 10 years down the way, you look back and think, maybe you figured it out. And I said, I had no idea that that was going on at that particular time. And so it's like in the, at the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul makes this comment. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has known the mind of the Lord? I mean, sometimes he just, uh, we don't know what's up his sleeve. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may keep all the words of this law. So there are secret things. And sometimes our prayers would change if we knew exactly what God's will was and we knew exactly what God was up to. And we really understood the need of the people that we were dealing with or the things that we were praying about, what the situation really was. And so uh, we're limited here. And so now it's time to pray. And so we pray for what we think is best, but the truth is we don't know. And we may be praying for the wrong thing and not even know it. There's no comeback for that. Um, it's time to pray. We pray for what we think is best, but we don't know. And we may be praying for the wrong thing. Not even, and it's not that we're wanting to be rebellious or pray against God's will. That's, that's not it. Uh, but we just don't know. And so when you think about what God is promising us here, he's saying... You know, when, when you pray to me, it's not just you working here. I'm going to take care of, of, of this problem. There's a dramatic example in our New Testaments, in the book of John, of people who were praying for the wrong thing and didn't know it. If you go over to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read these first four verses, and then the story goes on for another probably 50 verses. Uh, it's the story of Lazarus and the resurrection how Jesus raised him from the dead. But it starts off like this. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters uh, sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So it's the story, and I'm sure if you've, uh, the story's probably pretty familiar to you. Lazarus is very sick. It looks like he's right at death's door. His uh, sisters, whom Jesus, Jesus loved this family, his sisters know that Jesus would want to know, and maybe Jesus could do something for him. In fact, they know he could. Uh, they say as much when he finally shows up. But his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent for Jesus. They asked him to come, to help, to heal, to save this man. When Jesus hears the request from the messenger, you know what he says? You don't really, uh, well, you kind of expect this. It, but it's the next verses that make it unusual. But he says in verse 4, this sickness is not unto death. It's not to end in death. But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And so what Jesus is telling us, he said, okay, this, what's happening here is not really about this man dying. 
What's happening here is that God is going to be glorified. That's the main thing that we need to, we need to understand. As it turns out, Lazarus did die. And if you read this out of some uh, various ones of the English translations, you get the idea that God, that Jesus is saying, he will not die. But obviously, he wasn't saying that. I mean, Jesus said, Jesus had to be wrong then, and that's not going to work. But he wasn't saying that, uh, that he would not die. He said, what this is about is not this man and his sickness as much as it is about this is going to be an opportunity for God to be glorified. So he, he, let's continue on with the story here. So he's sick so that God may be glorified. So um, what does Mary and Martha and this messenger and all these closest friends they've sent for Jesus, what do they expect him to do? They expect him to pack his stuff up and get on the road immediately. They don't expect him to hang, just, you know, loaf around and wait. But what does he do? He waits two more days before he even starts. And when Jesus finally gets over there to Bethany where all this is happening, uh, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Man, talk about late. I mean, if he had left immediately, maybe he could have got there before he died. Uh, that would be doubtful. But maybe he just waits around a couple of days before he even starts. Now, here's my question. What were Mary and Martha praying for when they sent for Jesus? What did they want Jesus to do? And think of their request as a prayer to Jesus, okay? What were they praying for? They want him to come. They want him to do something about Lazarus. They want, they want him to save him, to heal him, to keep him from dying, to put him back up on his feet, to raise him up off, 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 his, off his sickbed, and to save his life. That's what they're asking for. That's what they're praying for. That's what they're wanting Jesus to do. But I want you to catch this. The glory that Jesus was seeking for his father would come not from healing Lazarus, but in raising Lazarus from the dead. Now that puts an interesting twist on their prayer, doesn't it? What they're praying for. Mary and Martha were praying for something that could not happen. In fact, the thing that they wanted to avoid at all costs had to happen before Jesus was going to show up. So think about that a little bit. What you have is you have Mary and Martha and all their friends. They're praying for the wrong thing, but they don't know it. They weren't praying for a bad thing. They weren't going against God on purpose. That isn't what we're talking about here. They just didn't know what, what was up God's sleeve. And sometimes we're kind of like Mary and Martha. We pray for the wrong thing too. And it's not that we're praying for bad things. I mean, we always say at the end of our prayer, do not do we not? Uh, not my will, but yours be done. Don't we say that? Whether we mean it or not, we, we at least say it. We know we're supposed to say that so that God doesn't think we're just trying to boss him around. But it may be that the good thing that we're praying for is not really within God's will. God's got something else going. And so we find ourselves praying against the will of God. So now we come back to Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We don't know what we're doing. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's the prayer that the Spirit says. The Spirit steps in and takes care of things. He fixes our prayer. And so Romans eight twenty six and 27 
tells us we're going to receive help with this weakness of ours. Many times I have not known what to pray for. Many times. Uh, I mean, there were thoughts in my mind, but I said, do I really want to pray that? Is that what, what we really need here? And sometimes I think the best thing that we can do when we pray is start something like this. Lord, I don't even know what to pray for. Just tell him. Yeah, admit it. <laughs> I don't even know what to pray for. And I'm asking you to make this prayer what it ought to be. Get the right thing here. I, I don't know what the right thing is. I don't know what the best thing is. I don't know what you've got up your sleeve. But do the best. Do the best thing that within your will for this person, this situation. And then give us the faith to understand it and accept it when it comes. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We trust him to say our prayer for us when we don't know what to pray. And so that's the second one of these loose ends right here about the Holy Spirit. We have some help with our prayer. Uh, when, when we're not praying the right thing, we can rely upon the Holy Spirit to get it right and to bring us in line with God's will. Now here's the third loose end I want to think about here. The Holy Spirit is our seal from God that we belong to him. This is Ephesians 1.13. But Paul says, in him that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. A seal in the ancient world was used for a lot of reasons. Sometimes a seal was, was used to make something secure for security type purposes. So, uh, when Pilate uh, was faced with the prospect of maybe someone breaking into the tomb or something like that, he placed a guard at the tomb of Jesus, and he sealed it. He put a seal. Somehow, I don't know exactly how they did that, but uh, they, he put a seal across that door, which was to say, don't mess with this. Don't break this seal. And so there was some measure of security being provided because there was the, the authority of Rome that was attached to this door. If you mess with the door, then you're going to be in trouble with Rome. And so there was, uh, a seal was some way of, of providing security. A seal was something that uh, would also indicate secrecy. Seals were placed on books and scrolls and documents and things like that to make sure that the contents are not seen by the wrong, were seen by the wrong people. And so in, in the book of Revelation, you have a vision. This is Revelation 4, 6, 4, 5, and 6. And I think maybe, maybe even goes into 7. You have a vision of this book that's got seven seals and no one can be found to open it. But finally, Jesus steps forward, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And lo and behold, he's the one who can open the seals of the book. The book's got something in it that needs to be revealed. And as each seal is broken, another part of the message is revealed. But the contents of this book were secret until the seals were broken. And then you begin to see the things that were in that book. They are revealed in the visions that follow. And so a seal might uh, indicate secrecy. And a seal might also indicate ownership. It might show ownership. And so a seal might be placed on an object or an animal or maybe even a person to indicate this belongs to me. This is my thing, my, my animal, my person, my slave. So you see this same thing show up again in Revelation. Uh, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. This is one of the, one of the visions here. I, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. So, so in his hand, he's got a seal. 
And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And so, it, so everything is held up. Everything is paused for a moment in this vision until the angels can go around and put a seal on the forehead of the people that belong to God. Now, it, it comes back to this, chapter 9, Revelation 9, is a continuation of the same, uh, of the same vision. And, it, and here it says, He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. If you had the seal, you had God's protection. You belonged to him. If you didn't have the seal, then you were not under his protection. And bad things were going to happen. So uh, that's what I'm saying. A, a seal showed ownership. God's people had the seal of, had the seal of God on their foreheads. And I, I love this statement that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. Uh, Timothy, Paul's talking to Timothy about this. He says, nevertheless... The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Here's the seal that God places on his kingdom, on his people. The Lord knows those who are his. They belong to me. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Man, those are the two pillars of the kingdom of God. The Lord knows the people who are his, and he expects the people who are his to live like they belong to him. That's it. But that's the seal of God that he places on the foreheads of his people. So this is the, the Holy Spirit is God's seal on us. We belong to him. We are his possession. He knows we belong to him because he's placed his seal upon us. And that brings us to the fourth uh, loose end here. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that God will finish the work that he has started in us. And so we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 and 22. Paul says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ Jesus, in Christ, and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And so, actually, this verse kind of hits two, the, the one we just talked about, the sealing business. Now he talks about a pledge or a deposit or a, an earnest or a down payment. That, that's what the pledge is here. It, it, it's kind of like a, a down payment. The Holy Spirit is God's pledge, his earnest, his deposit, that he will finish what he has started. A pledge or a down payment is given to show that the buyer is serious, that he fully intends to, to finish paying it off and to, and to abide by all the terms of the deal, whatever it is. Well, God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment on all the promises that he has made. And when we became Christians, when we were converted, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. We received a new status with God. We are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We were added to the body of Christ. We became members of the kingdom, members of the family of God. All these are great blessings, wonderful blessings, wonderful things that God has done for us at the time that we became Christians. Things changed dramatically. And all that is great, but so much more is coming. God has promised so much more than what we have already received. And, we, uh, and he has given us a down payment. Think of this as the Holy Spirit is our down payment. 
the earnest, the deposit that says, I'm going to do, I'm going to do everything that I promised. We have an inheritance waiting for us. When Paul tries to describe this inheritance, words fail him. He says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Man, uh, we've never seen it, we've never heard it, we can't even think it. It's so good. And then the Apostle Peter also describes our inheritance. And it, it's, uh, if, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but you can't say in positive terms what it is because it's just too much. So you have to turn around and think, approach it from the negative side, and you, you talk about what it is not. And that's kind of how Peter has to work with this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance. Okay, here's our inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And you, you see what he does there? He, said, he tries to talk about our, our inheritance. And it, it, the, the word, he can't find words big enough to say what it really is, so he says what it's not. It's not perishable, it's not defiled, and it's not going to fade away. That's how he describes it. We're talking about a great inheritance for us. And then Paul not only talks about uh, things in this way, but he also talks about the new body. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, 51, and 52. Paul says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's talking about the body now. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, those who are still living, we will be changed. We will be changed. He's talking about the new body that God is going to give with us. And so uh, in this new body, we live in a new heaven and a new earth. And all, that's all part of the promises that God has made for us. Now, that's it. That's all I want to tell you about the Lucians. But I, I just want to point out something to you before we, we leave this. You probably already knew most of what we talked about this morning because uh, none of this is uh, what I'll call rocket science. Most of the, of the Bible is fairly straightforward. It's, it's, not, uh, it's simple, straightforward stuff, and what we've talked about this morning is pretty simple and straightforward. The challenge of Christ is not intellectual understanding challenge of Christ is faith. Believing what you're reading. Believing that simple, straightforward stuff that's just been said to you. Believing and trusting in the promises of God. And the fulfillment of every promise of God is not just a matter of God's honor and his trustworthiness. We never worry about God doing his part. We know, we know he's, he's there. He, he, he's going to stand by it all. We know that he's faithful. But the fulfillment of every promise of God for us is predicated on us believing and trusting in God to keep it. It's as if those promises were never made if we cannot put our trust in those promises. They don't exist for us until we have faith in those things. We believe them, and they become a part of our life, and we live like we believe them. 
God promises us the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit, he promises to do many powerful and wonderful things for us. And what he expects from us is to believe. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. According to your faith, be it done unto you. Maybe there's someone here this morning that's not a child of God. And when we, uh, this is an opportunity for you to become a child of God, to become a Christian. We're going to sing our hymn here in just a moment, uh, just a very short moment, a hymn of invitation. And that would be your opportunity to come before us and say, yes, I do believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe God's promises are for me, and I'm ready to put my faith and trust in him. I repent of my sins today. I'm ready to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, just like the Bible says. And if you're at that point this morning, you're ready for that, you can be a Christian before you leave here. Everything that's necessary will be here, and we'll take care of it. And maybe there's a Christian here that needs to um, say something to the church. Uh, a sin, uh, a situation that needs to be confessed or brought before us. Something needs to be prayed about. Uh, we can do it now, or you can find one of these elders in private uh, uh, a little later, and you can take them off to a room and say, look, here's what's going on, and I need, I need your help. I need your, I need your advice. I need your prayers. And I probably, in a lot of cases, that's a better way of handling things, but I don't want to cut, cut you off. If you want to come and, and let us know, we'll pray right here, right now about those situations. If you need to respond to the invitation of Christ, uh, we ask you to do that. Let's all stand and sing.